Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 47 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. Thank you so much for downloading us from iTunes or Podbean or wherever you may get your podcasts from. We truly appreciate you taking the time to spend a little bit of your festive season with us here today. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean A.S., and I am joined as ever by my colleague, the sports journalist and Twitter, Lutic Wanker. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's festive Liam Happ. Good evening and Merry Christmas to you, Liam. Lutic Wanker, Lutic Wanker. Merry Christmas to you too, Dean. I am so happy to be here with you about to record more absolute bollocks about <laughs> old professional wrestling. Because I'm not even joking. This is what I love doing. This is fun. And I'm so glad we can share this with, you know, more than a couple of listeners. And and as you have mentioned just then, you know, it's, we're, we're putting this out to our millions and millions of subscribers uh, on Christmas Day or, or Christmas Eve, maybe. But um, it, it's it's the kind of thing that we always talk about. We are providing people with new first-time content that has been recorded in advance because it's going out at Christmas. Yes, because one thing we want to do for you, the Because WCW listener, to help you out at this festive time is to give you something, anything that means you don't have to watch Mrs. Brown's Boys. Or call the fucking midwife. Oh, oh. oh man, and, there's uh, some rough stuff this year. And to uh, our American friends, I know we have a, a lot of people listening in America and in Canada. I don't know what your Christmas TV schedules are like. I'm hoping they're slightly better than the ones we have in the UK. But hey, you know, every every cloud has a silver lining. The blessing is a curse because you've switched your TV off and you're listening to our podcast. We hope. We hope. Or maybe, maybe it's the new year. Maybe you're listening to this podcast while you take your first nervous steps to the gym to shift some of those extra pounds. With that six-month membership that you're going to bin off in mid-February. Oh, that's quite ambitious. Mid-February, mid-January, surely. Now, but then people call you out on it. If you can just get through to February, people shut up and then you're like, yeah, I showed them what for. Now I'm done. See, that is the that is the thinking man. That is the woke approach to buy <laughs> to buying six months worth of stuff and wasting it. That sure showed them. Yep. So um, we are doing a slightly different kind of show um, this time around. What what are we doing? Well, those of you who follow us on social media, and uh, yeah, both, those of you, of yeah, those of you who don't fucking start doing it now. You're hurting at our feelings. W- yeah, at because WCW on Twitter, Facebook.com forward slash because WCW. We haven't done an Instagram. 
We don't, I mean, what would we do with an Instagram? Let's be fair. Well, exactly. There's not much we can do. Take Some, pictures of ourselves on a night out. Nah. No one deserves that. No, no one. We want to grow the listener base. We don't want to diminish it. Um, but yes, we have mentioned on social media that we would like to tackle our first ever Q&A episode. One of the reasons we want to do this is you. those of us who've been listening from the start may have noticed that we tend to hibernate at this time of year. Uh, I believe Dean's schedule in Christmas 2017 was really, really busy. IPW shows, a few other shows. We just literally couldn't do an episode for a couple of months, which was a shame. Uh, and then last year was my turn because I had the first of many laptop disasters that put us oh, in yes. commission for a couple of months. And it did feel, Dean and I said to each other, it feels like we are cursed. So one of the reasons I was keen to do this was like, ah, look at us, fuck you. We're doing a Christmas episode. Uh, we can actually be active at this time of year, sort of, because we're pre-recording this in advance. But yeah, as Dean mentioned, it's it's nice to get up some some bonus content as well because we really appreciate everyone who, who stuck with us and checked us out and come up with ideas and giving us their feedback we started off as novices novices i should say with this uh whole thing it's something we want to do but we were far from experts going in and we have found our way to being far more confident and far more technically proficient not that there's a high bar on that uh so we want to thank you by involving you guys in this episode there'll be some name drops there'll be some banter uh it'll be great to field your questions and answer them and just give you a little more insight into our you know we've hinted on so many topics that come up here where we've gone into little sidebars while covering pay-per-views but on this occasion we can tackle the questions and really just go hell for leather on them without feeling guilty that we're abandoning dave fucking sullivan versus the Night Stalker or whatever it was. And, and um, yeah, also, yes, yeah, echo what you said there. Thank you so much for everyone who, who got in touch with us. And, you know, the great thing was as well, we we uh, got several DMs and private messages um, on, on different platforms. And, you know, we I thought, yeah, we might get one or two, but actually, we, you know, we, we had... We had a good number of questions. We haven't actually been able to get get all of them uh, on here, but we have selected the the ones that we think were the best, the most interesting. So, so should we start? I suppose we'll start at the top of the list. Yes. Um, we had a question from Kieran Lafort, and he says, "What do you think are the all-time best and worst WCW matches?" So, what would you say? Let's let's start on the positive. What would you say is your Best WCW match. There's, I mean, it's it's a. At the same time, it's a very obvious and a very very good question, and it's the best way to start this. I, I like this as a lead off question. Uh, I've kind of shown my hand in previous episodes, so I might as well stick to my guns. And this is, this is a boring answer. It's the consensus for a lot of WCW fans. But War Games '92 was, it was perfection, wasn't it? Um, and if you guys go back, it's very early on we covered it. I want to say like episode five. I might have to do a quick back check, but in one of yes. our very early episodes, we covered WrestleWar '92, and I one of my favourite early memories of this podcast was that may have been the first time we really went deep on a match 
we we went through the psychology we went through move after move uh, and there's been a few since then that we've really enjoyed going really scientific in analyzing uh, the the great debate we had with Greg Lambert for the Ironman challenge was was one of our favorite memories but th that that war games match was the first time we went really in we stopped the fucks and the pisses and the silly jokes and and we analyzed that and it was a pleasure and one of the reasons it was a pleasure was because it was wrestling perfection and WCW didn't offer wrestling perfection a lot a lot of the time being a WCW fan is Stockholm syndrome it's giving you 20% of good times, which made you feel duty obliged to put up with the 80% of crap. But it was, but um, that was just, to, just to interrupt you there, it was episode number four, four. Uh, which we put out in November, um, November the 10th, 2017. So that's that's the one to look for. Episode number four, we look at Wrestle War 92. Yeah. Great um, match, and yeah. I'm really proud of the analysis we provide for it. So look back for that episode, and definitely, but whatever you do, whether you've seen it or you haven't seen it somehow, watch that match. It's brilliant. Yeah, the War Games was, and it was also it was the way that the the, the storyline with the Dangerous Alliance. This, you know, they had been they had been running running the show in WCW. They'd been dominating everything. The heels kept going over. They were all but they had all the titles bar the world title which Sting had. And this was the first chink in the armor. And actually this was where the Dangerous Alliance starts to, to crumble where with this with this loss. And and it was as you said Liam, it's perfection because You've paid your money as a as a WCW fan, and you're hoping that the good guys win and that they shut up Paul Paulie dangerously for for once. And everything you could possibly want to happen happens in that match. It is it is beautiful, absolutely fantastic match. Um, for me, best best WCW match. One that um one I mean it, it depends when you say best. You know, like the 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 famous Hogan Goldberg match from from Atlanta from the um super is it the Superdome the Georgia Dome the um you you, know, you are I, doing a Hulk Hogan I'm there, doing a Hogan yeah um that you know that that wasn't the best technical match by any stretch of the imagination but as far as as atmosphere went I don't think that could that was ever beaten you had forty thousand people screaming at the top of their lungs standing on their feet for the entire match so you know as far as atmosphere and and his historical significance or how it felt at the time that was was absolutely spot on and for just best match standalone match on its own it's something i've mentioned before and i don't think we've covered this show yet it'd be good if, if someone wants to cover this one with us the main event of great american bash 95 flair v savage Mm. was just the I loved that match because the intensity of the match the pace didn't let up you know these two had obviously had a very famous match at Wrestlemania 8 a few years previous now they're both in WCW the the Wrestlemania match was centered around Flair taunting Savage via Miss Elizabeth obviously that uh, that relationship had uh, had ended both on and off screen by this point and so the the heat as such was transferred to angelo poffo randy savage's father that flair had attacked and that gave you know in storyline that gave savage the catalyst to really go for flair and and let's face it 
you know, one one person in in wrestling, not just at this time, at any time, that was unparalleled at make uh, at, at channeling this intensity and making you feel that a a feud a rivalry was was actually real and intense was the macho man you know the the eyes the movement everything um you know he was fantastic at that and that match just always sticks in my head as being a, a great great match oh yeah absolutely i mean if you think about it they did indeed spend the better part of a decade wrestling on and off across Ooh. two companies and we it, it, even from from this podcast alone we've seen that they have had several great matches and they've had several uh matches on autopilot and then there was that uh rush together mess at starcade 95 oh, so there, there's a wide spectrum for the quality of of their matches but that one that you just mentioned at the bash 95 struck me as the match that the two of them were always striving to have and the match that they always thought they could have together even before they actually had the opportunity to work together. That was probably the match they both aspired to have with one another and they and they got it. They nailed it that one time and there's been some good ones elsewhere, don't get me wrong, but that was that was the apex perhaps. Mm. Okay, let's flip that coin. Worst match. Now, for me, again, like a lot of this stuff can uh, be found in previous episodes, but again, we don't necessarily really get to delve into it. So this is my chance to delve into something that was a side thing on another older episode when we covered Bash at the Beach 1999 with Ash Rose of Gorilla Position and several other places he does WWE Kids Magazine as well and they just had a very very successful um, live event recently with Seth Rollins and Becky Lynch coming to Indigo at the O2 I don't know if you guys have seen about that that went down a a storm I couldn't make it myself but I'm so proud for those guys and hopefully it leads to more of those sort of events because you you and I both know these sort of live spoken word events they're just brilliant it's such a great opportunity outside of typical classic wrestling shows to to get more of what we love so i love that um Ooh, and when we that had was, um, that was episode 11 if, nice uh, if you're looking out for that one uh which we uh, put out in the middle of april 2018 so yeah episode 11 is bash at the beach with uh with ash rose that was a great episode we should get him back on actually definitely i love to have him on 2020 and i love the fact dean that you are bang on the uh, the cross-referencing and getting these things up because i'm struggling to remember exact episode numbers so you're helping me out I, I I have got I have got a list in front of me. My memory is not that good. Hashtag five concussions. <laughs> I knew it was coming at some point. I didn't realise it would take less than fifteen minutes. But here we are. Um, <laughs> so I think most people could guess what I'm going to. If I'm talking about Bash at the Beach '99, yes, the worst match for me in WWE history that I said on that episode as well was the Junkyard Battle Royal debacle um and one of the reasons i list that as my because there, there's been some absolute stinkers in those so we know this uh and, and that's one thing but it, this is a subjective topic i get that but for me the, the reason why the junkyard battle world is the worst is there's actually a laundry list of actual cold hard facts that make it objectively a horrible thing it's not just oh 
this this match hurts my eyes. I think it's rubbish. That's terrible. Um, they stuck 15 or so WCW undercard wrestlers in an actual junkyard where most of them got lacerated, infected. There were several serious injuries. Uh, we've heard, so if you look at shoot interviews and some other um, inside um, sources, we find out after the fact that there was, there was almost some very, very dangerous injuries sustained in that match. All four, just a bunch of people brawling. As we covered it on the thing, Dean, you remember, uh, I can mm. hardly remember a single spot or anything like that happened. They tried some dives and all that. Nothing stood out, mostly because we couldn't see fuck all. The lighting main... was terrible. Yeah. My main recollection of that is basically a helicopter looking down on a bunch of what looked like ants just swarming around some cars and then something blowing up and, as you say, nearly killing everyone. And I know this is this is nothing new for WCW when it comes to wasting money, but that whole thing with all the helicopter, it cost them a lot of money to do this. It's Ooh. just beggar's belief just how many ways in which this was a bad idea and a dangerous idea. And because of that, for, for me, that is going to be 10 times worse than anything that's just merely... <laughs> you know, not that it is merely, but if it merely just stinks up the wrestling ring and you think, all right, that sucked, that really, really sucked. But they can just go back, they can think, all right, we sucked, we need to get better. The fans can think, I wish I didn't watch that, but I did, let's move on. But there was a far worse legacy for this, and that's why it stands above all the other shitty matches that those stubbies thrown up in over a decade. Fair enough. Um, I, I can't disagree with the Junkyard Battle Royal, um, but if I have to discount that and go for something other than that, I would say it's got to be um, the un, the main event of Uncensored 96, the oh. Doomsday Triple K. Is it the Doomsday Cage match? I think they yes. called it. Um, which we have. Um, yeah, we have. We have also covered this episode nine with the long-suffering Paul Benson. Although, having said that, he chose that event, didn't he? So, um, he's only got himself to blame. Um, and, again, that it's, it's something that didn't make sense on so many levels. I mean, the lighting was pretty terrible there as well, so you couldn't see much of what was going on. You had wrestlers having to walk on a mesh ceiling rather than a ring, um, you know, WWE, they saw sense and kind of, you know, they, when they did matches where you'd have spots on roofs like Hell in a Cell later on, they kind of changed the structure of it slightly to give you, give the wrestlers more support underfoot if they knew they were going up, up top. So you, you had the fact that you had, you know, wrestlers that couldn't really get their footing in a bad lit arena. The rules were never really explained. Because I seem to remember Randy Savage leaving the cage and having to pop back into the cage. Oh, sorry, forgot to pin someone, getting the pin and then buggering off again. The fact, as you've already uh, alluded to, Liam, it was eight versus two. And and these weren't mid-cards. These were your your headlining heels. This was Flair and Anderson. And, uh, I mean, Pillman saw sense and got the hell out of there. But you had, yeah, Flair and Anderson, the Dungeon of Doom, who sadly were the, the top um, heels at the time. And you've just killed your heels. You've killed your entire heel population. 
Um, and, and it's little wonder that, you know, later on, literally a few months down the line, Hogan has Hogan turns heel at that point because he's run out of heels to face because he's beaten them all in a four, four against four against one ratio, four to one ratio of, of faces or heels to faces. And, you know, you have to bring in Hall and Nash from WCW as, as fresh heels that have never been seen before or haven't been seen in, in those personas in WCW, together with with um, with Hogan as, as a, a rejuvenated heel. So um, it just didn't make much sense at all. Um, and, and, oh, and you don't forget that they also brought in two people who hadn't wrestled in literally a decade. Um, so Hogan could try and relive some of his past babyface glories. Yeah, well, I think Dean here has, has pretty much summed up everything we hated about the match, and obviously we <laughs> went in, we went in two-footed on it on the podcast with Paul, which is fair enough. But one thing I do want to add on top of that is that the 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 rationale. So we've covered, you, you know, you, you, you've got the match itself and how ridiculous it was covered. All ends up. That's fair enough. But the rationale for why they actually did that, uh, I would recommend sticking with us as we embark on the Nitro watch-alongs uh, at the top of 1996 when we resume them, presumably not long after the, the, the new year of 2020. Uh, so January 2020 will bring January 1996 watch-alongs, and we're going to work our won't take us long to work our way up to Uncensored 96 and the build for that match. And I think yeah. that will allow us to really cover, especially if you're listening to the 95 watch-alongs and and Hogan's midlife crisis, we call it his his desperate <laughs> his utter utter desperation to be still the top boy as other acts just get more of a reaction than he does and he's still trying to do his 80s thing but he's trying to make it cool and and that desperation reaches a peak uncensored 96 so join us for those nitro watchalongs for that uh, and if anyone's starting to think that our answers are mostly almost entirely related to episodes we've all already covered I just want to assure you right now that Although it's nice when we can plug our old episodes, we are legit picking out things like because um, War Games 92 really was that good and Uncensored 96 really was that bad. And yeah. it's just I, I think that's probably why we end up gravitating to these episodes very early on. And I know whatever yeah. guests we have love to stick us. With. I remember when Stu Allen made sure we covered Chamber of Fucking Horrors. They just <laughs> people just like us to suffer. Oh God, that was a terrible match as well, wasn't it? That in fact, that, in fact that Havoc ninety one was just an awful pay per view full stop. Yeah. Yeah. Deserves and Havoc Havoc ninety one. Havoc ninety two. Oh God, I've just remembered Rude V Chono. God that was awful. Ooh. Yeah, I, I mean I I give rationale for um the junkyard battle world that it's it was more than just like a crappy match. But I suppose you could flip the logic around and say who was so bad that they took a regular wrestling match and managed to turn even that into shit and and Rudin considering Rudin Chono's actual abilities, probably you, you know, we've all heard of, of value added uh, as a as, as a legitimate way of measuring something's quality. Uh, mm. And if you look at the opposite of it, that's probably rude channels. Uh, considering what you've got there and what you got, what sort of return you got out of them, 
I think value be, subtracted. Yeah. yeah, value subtracted. That was them. <laughs> yes, and I mean the thing, the thing to bear in mind as well. You know, these these shows stick in our minds. They also stick in our guests' minds. So yeah, when we when we ask uh, people who are coming on the show, you know, what what pay per view would you like to cover? These are the ones that they they want to cover because these are the ones they remember. So uh, anyway, thank you very much, Kieran, for your question. Great stuff. So let's move on to the next question. This is from Carl Stewart, um, and he has asked. So we, we've already talked about the best and worst matches. He has asked um, what our favourite WCW match and favourite show was. Ah, I like this. We can get a little bit more preferential. We don't have to follow the staff. The, the the star rating sort of logic or anything like that, which is cool. Uh, for me, my favourite show is one we'll hopefully cover in 2020. It's it's been discussed many times. Just wouldn't try and find the perfect guess for it really. Uh, I'll always have a, a soft spot for Spring Stampede 1999. Uh, consi- mm-hmm. Considered the last truly great WCW pay per view. And funny enough, one, one when it comes to favourite match. One of the matches on that show leaps off the page, which is uh, Benoit Malenko as the horseman facing Raven and Saturn in a Ravens Rules tag match, which just blew my mind for how good the tag match was and how much hatred they managed to drum up between each other as a couple of tag teams who'd only really been feuding for a couple of weeks. There wasn't, you know, the the the, the month prior, um, Raven was in a in a thing with. Uh, Bam Bam Bigelow and Hack entertaining like garbage mess in uh, uncensored and the Horsemen as as baby faces beat Hennig and Wyndham for the tag titles. So we got to a point very quickly. But if you watch this, you'd think they'd been at each other's throats for a year or so, and the quality of the match was just so so good. Yeah, there's there's a few shows for me. I mean, one that sticks in my mind that we haven't covered yet is um, this may be more match than show. I'm trying to dredge my memories. Halloween Havoc 1990, that was the one with Steiner Brothers v Nasty Boys. Yeah, that's a good shout. For I mean, the the match was probably not a match of the year contender or anything, but it's funny how so many people. Even people who I remember taking that videotape into school, and we managed mm. on an off period, we managed to watch some of Halloween Havoc '90, and just non-wrestling fans were transfixed on that match. Great yeah. show! It was, and that's that's one we haven't covered yet. Um, I'm just looking at the rest. The rest of the show didn't cover itself in glory, I don't think. Um, no. Oh, you, you you did have what I believe could have been G- Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express's last appearance in WCW or the NWA. Um, yeah, and you had the Master Blasters, which was um, Al Green and Kevin Nash against uh, Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong. Um, Doom against Flair and Anderson. That's when they were feuding with one another. You got um, Stan Hansen beats Lex Luger for the United States title, and that was one of those moments where, like, the crowd was silent, but in a good way. They were shocked mm. because they weren't necessarily all that familiar with Stan Hansen because he was mostly in Japan and he, he didn't come over very often, and he basically just brutalized. Luger and and beat him and the, you know the 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 way the match was put together is like Luger didn't know what had hit him and he'd been the champion for a long long time and that was you know, that was a really good um that was a really good yeah it was a bit of a low key banger wasn't it 
because yeah. the rematch we won the title back wasn't that great. It was a bit of a no. disorganized match. Not for lack of effort, it's just because I think they did the strap match, didn't they? It was just a bit all over the place. But that first mm. match, yeah, that, that was just... Sometimes you can't beat two guys beating the tar out of each other. Or in this case, one guy beating the tar out of yeah. the other guy. Um, and then another one that sticks in my mind that we haven't covered yet as well is um, Slambury 94 from Philadelphia. Because this, yeah, this was when ECW was really gaining momentum as well. And they went to the home of ECW. And they did what we often complain other companies don't always do, especially WWE with when, when they're very aware of going to certain cities. They tailored the show for the audience they knew they were going to get mm. so you um you had you had things like terry funk and tully blanchard having a wild brawl um and i don't think blanchard had wrestled for years before then either i think he'd retired and he came out of retirement for that um you had a ball rope match of dustin Rhodes and bunkhouse buck which was i'm sure must have been a bit bloody flair v windham you can never go wrong with that you had another wild brawl the broad street bully match um of cactus jack and kevin sullivan v the nasty boys there they are again with um a guy dave schultz not that dave schultz so i think it was a nice hockey player so yes. they got that low he, he was the broad street bully wasn't he I yeah think. Um, and then, then you've got the main event of um, Sting v Vader, which you can never go wrong with, as far as I'm concerned. So um, those are two, those are two shows that um, you know that we we haven't covered yet. As far as favourite matches go, um, one that, and it is one that we have covered, but it's um, it, it's it's one that I absolutely love, and I mentioned this on the episode. I'm trying to find which which pay per view it was because my mind has gone blank. But um, Chris Jericho against Dean Malenko, where Jericho, uh, where oh, here you go, Slambury ninety eight. I found it, episode forty two, Slambury ninety eight. That we put that out in in October this uh, of 2019. It's so not long ago. The the whole thing of where Malenko has just disappeared off the face of the earth for two months, wins the battle royal dressed as Cyclope and then um, just has this intense heated match with the the result that the fans want to see of of the heel Jericho finally losing his cruiserweight belt. It's, it's just absolutely magical. It is everything done correctly. It's, I always say that the thing that modern wrestling doesn't get these days is time. You know, you can't really imagine someone being out for two months these days, the way, the way that the, the nature of wrestling these days, but you know, they did everything right. They, they, you know, they're basically paying him to sit at home for two months to to play out this angle, and it worked, and it absolutely was it, it was perfect for me, absolutely perfect. Yeah, unfortunately, Silver King never did get upgraded to Golden King, did he? He he never did. No. I think Jericho no. was lying to us. <laughs> but isn't isn't it telling that Chris? I don't know if anyone has been paying attention to me, that Jericho has been on fire with his promo so far in AEW. Mm-hmm. And oh, there's yeah. a lot, there's a lot of homage to his to his '98 Lionheart days, 
obviously he he evolves and adapts but he that he you know he that he does some silly listing he does some back and forths you can see just that little little glint of the lionheart days coming out in his promos and obviously everything else he's accomplished since then and it's nice to see it does remind me of those days as did the stare down he had with Dean malenko at the last pay-per-view mm-hmm. when malenko was a judge yeah and and i think talking of of Dean malenko you know We've we've both mentioned this before about I think our favourite well our surprise favourite Nitro watch long match so far has probably been Sting v Milenko. Yes. On one of those. Nitros. If we're gonna go full personal preference, we should be mentioned because you you and I have said since then we can't believe that just some any old intriguing matchup obviously on paper, but just some random TV main event and a routine win for Sting was able to capture our imaginations, you know, nearly 20 years after the company's kaput and, and nearly 25 years after the match was, was first aired. So it's, it's amazing that that made such a good impression. For that, yeah, that definitely deserves a mention. Yeah, and that's I think that's either that was around about when we um, did the episode with Mike Quackenbush. So I think that's either episode's... It's either episode 10 or 11 of Nitro, so that would be either that episode, podcast number 35 or 37, one or the other, I reckon, on there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Um, okay, thank you, Carl. So, next question is from D. Lynn Miller, um, who says, I'd like to know your dream scenario in which the NWO angle ended in the best possible way. What was the best way they could have handled it rather than the way they did? So here you go, Liam. This is this is almost a, a, a little um, a little tangent from uh, if Fusion bought WCW in the fantasy booking. So if uh, if you had the book for the NWO, how would you have finished the angle off? Well, I'll say one thing first on on that Fusion fan fiction. Obviously, uh, that starts from two thousand one. I don't try to. Re- uh, resume the NWO storyline. That stays dead and buried. People might be pleased to know. But yeah, I, d- I do enjoy these what-if scenarios. And I have touched upon this uh, here. And again, this is my chance to go full steam with it rather than feeling like I need to get back on track. This is the track. Um, and I like the timeliness of this question as well because we have just found out that the NWO and Batista are going in the Hall of Fame next year. The WWE mm-hmm. Hall of Fame. And immediately the NWO induction sparks up a debate because we found out that the only people getting inducted, so to speak, and getting rings and being up on stage, I suppose, are Hogan, Hall, Nash, and Six, Sean Warman. Uh, you understand that you know, the, the first three are the first three. Fair enough. And if they had done that, people wouldn't have debated other members as much but the fact they decided to throw in Sean Waltman you know because he's well in with a company at the minute let's face it because he's mates yeah yeah uh, but but other guys on the periphery or even more significant members uh, haven't uh, been looked at is quite t- and it sparked debate about and people made jokes about oh yeah yeah, yeah there should be rings for all 56 members uh, bloody 56 members but here's the thing I can't remember when I said this. I might have said it more than once. But it's always been my belief that the New World Order angle, which most people are in agreement on, was near perfect for six months, 
And then we get to the point at the end of 96, we find out that Bischoff is actually on board with them. He becomes, which kind of makes Ted DiBiase redundant, which is a shame because he did quite well. And that made sense. You know, he's the money from the WWE. Yeah, I kind of like DiBiase being involved. But Bischoff took over and it was then that he said, all right, we are taking over. We want people to join us or we're going to beat you down. And that's the point where people like Buff Bagwell and all that just started joining and the numbers swelled up. I have always maintained that that was the right thing to happen. So for me, things were still going well even then. You had Hogan versus Piper at Starcade, which doesn't seem like a great main event in 96. But you know what? Just that first time, fair enough. Starcade 96, it drew a good number. And as we mentioned in the Starcade 95 um, podcast, literally the last one we did, um, there was a time with 95, 94, uh, two horrible pay-per-view main events 93 was better with flair versus vader 96 got back on the right track you know it was a it was a big main event two stars it felt like a proper end of year showpiece pay-per-view main event so for me things are still going well and here's where the nwo thing makes sense for me we're getting to the point where they've beaten down everyone wcw struggling to get along sting's fucked off because no one trusts him uh the horseman and the the good guys are all kind of in it together, but they can't get along because they've spent so long being at each other's throats. So it makes them easy pickings for the new old order and to the point where they've got in the cushy seat, thanks to Bischoff, and now they're becoming the establishment. So of course they're going to get all the the foot soldiers and, and, the, and it doesn't take away from the star power of it because they are the fucking hills. And maybe if they'd have gone a bit more headlong into that, the, the, the main perpetrators, although they had creative control anyway, might have stopped being so desperate to be cool hills and might have carried the story to its natural premise. They become the system they were taking over. And you saw little hints at the guys who were able to stand up to NWO when DDP uh, rejected the outsiders when um, yeah. Sting finally morphed into the crow and kicked so much ass, and everyone ate it up with a spoon. It led to Starcade '97's huge main event, record drawing numbers. Um, there was that core cool element where NWO became the establishment and had the numbers, and the guys who had their asses kicked were starting to turn around and invade the new world order. That is why, from a storyline point of view, having so much NWO kind of made sense. You, It made you want DDP to come from out of nowhere and start kicking ass. It made you want Sting to come. And, and what it lacked, one thing Bischoff was never willing to do, was you wanted the horsemen to finally get on the same page and think, right, we're going old school horsemen. We're going to start breaking arms with baseball bats. Ooh. New World Order. Can you imagine setting up these schmucks in New World Order t-shirts? The the bottom of the order of it, the the Scott Nortons and the Bagwells, they they are perfectly set for a, a, a refreshed horseman to start mowing through to the point where people are like, yes, we're finally getting this. But you haven't had the horseman and the outsiders yet. You've got that to come. That would draw if you went like that. So that's the way I'd go with it. And then, yeah, you get to the point where those that were finally fighting back, they've got that renewed vigour. Um, 
and it all comes to a head at Starcade 97. And at Starcade 97, Sting kicks Hogan's ass. You can give him a fucking competitive match at Super Brawl, but that that should have been. Sting gets beaten up for 60 seconds, no cells. Sting a splash, taps him out, done. And that would have got the biggest reception you'd imagine. You know, Hogan versus Iron Sheik. Uh, the, the the match that kicks off Hulkamania that went about what three minutes? Did you want fifteen minutes out of them? Fuck no! You wanted that moment. You wanted that Hogan Goldberg moment you alluded to earlier, and that's what we should have got. Star K ninety seven, and then in ninety eight, you know, because it's a big shirt seller and because they're kind of still there, you don't just ditch it completely. I I'd, I'd do the Civil War thing with the Wolfpack and and Hollywood splitting up, but I wouldn't make it the focal point of the show. You'd have it underneath guys like Sting and Goldberg, and Bret Hart is obviously in. So you'd have your main eventers who are not in WF laid, and you've still got big matches, usually, you know, second to top of the card, chief support, pitting Wolfpack and Hollywood. And then that's your obvious war games as well, when it would main event. So that's the way I would have gone, but that was never going to happen with the creative control contracts. This was the problem, yeah. Yeah. The, because... Also, you know, you've um, actually no. I was going to say something, else, so I'm going to I'm going to leave I'm going to leave that for another. Hold that thought. I'm going to leave that because we've got another question coming up where I I can go down some some similar similar lines to this. Okay. Um, but yeah, just bear in mind if I'll just say just because again hashtag five concussions when when we get to and you'll know you'll know when when we talk about this question. Um, I want to reference the New Japan UWFI feud, which obviously was the inspiration for the NW angle in the first place. Mm. So um, we'll come to that in a bit. Okay, thank you, uh, Lynn. Um, okay, we've now got uh, another question. I love this question here. Um, this is from someone who who's regularly um, comments on some of our things on uh, on on Twitter, uh, Navdeep Rayhill, and um, he has asked, "What are your favourite memories of watching WCW Worldwide on ITV?" You want me to go first? You go first, okay, yeah. I, I tell you what, because we, 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 I don't want to point out how old Dean is. Well, too late. <laughs> but, um, yeah, well, I think we've already established. De- Dean was in a, a better seat. He was in the box seat for this. Uh, you were a young adult during these days, weren't you? Um, um, I was, yeah, teenage, teenager, teenager, yeah. Yeah. T- teenager with full control over what you're going to watch and that more awareness of what's going on with wrestling. You were able to catch because there were later night ones as well. Uh, I was, you know, I'd been anything from depending on what year you're looking at, you, you're looking the ages six to ten for me. So I only ever watched the Saturday afternoon one that we've we've mentioned before. They had a NWA. Not NWA, NBA, sorry. I'm, I'm getting mixed up with actual wrestling. <laughs> NBA magazine show on ITV in the afternoon and a couple of other like um, chart shows. And there used to be all this guff programming, but I mean that in the nicest possible way. And the repeats of what the cool kids like Dean were watching late at night would come on on a Saturday afternoon. So that was, that was my memory. And there were several big moments that I watched for the first time via... That simple hour on a Saturday afternoon. I remember the angle where um, Paulie Dangerously, this was early Dangerous Alliance, was trying to manipulate Marcus Alexander Bagwell into getting a TV title shot at Steve Austin because they saw him as a lame duck. 
and Bagwell was all, oh no, I'll I'll come back for that match in six months when I'm ready because I've just started, I'm still learning. You don't see that played up a lot on TV either. Uh, and so they've tried to do that, and, and Dangerously has got all mad at him, and so Bagwell's like clocked him one, and then the entire Dangerous Lions have swarmed on him, and then Sting's come to save the day, but he's not enough to do five of the Alliance. He's end up handcuffed to the railing, and then uh, and one of the reasons I remember this was that Greg Valentine came and made the save for Sting and Bagwell. I think he just joined. He was in like WWF like a few months prior, and before too long they just think fuck it and turn him into a grizzled hill. So that didn't last long where we was helping guys like Sting. But that was just such a random thing to see. I was like, what the hell is Greg Valentine doing here? Um, I remember the Paula chance every time Paul Orndorff was wrestling. He got such good heat and he was always entertaining. Um, I remember there was an elimination match, I think. A really good, I think it was on a Clash of the Champions. They must have put a few Clash things on WCW Worldwide. But I remember that elimination match. And I also remember several really good six-man tags involving guys like the Dangerous Alliance, but also guys like later on when you had, uh, in 94, you just have random heels like Vader and Steve Austin team up together against Dustin Rhodes and that. Uh, and there was all, all, always really good six-man tags, and it'd always be we've run out of time. And I remember just struggling to understand what TV time remaining was. But yeah, I was bred up on that stuff. I loved it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. For me, I mean, one one thing just to um to mention to our and probably for our overseas listeners is, um, we have uh, at this time. I think TV's obviously changed since then, but at this time we're talking about the 1990s. Um, you had national television stations. However, ITV was slightly different in that ITV was divided up into regions across the country. Um, so you would have been in London, you'd have been Thames Television and Thames, London yeah. Weekend, London Weekend Television That's at the right. weekends. Whereas my um, my region was Meridian um, down on the south coast, and we we had different. So each, what you get is each region of the country would have slightly different programming at times, and worldwide was one of those things that would air at different times in different parts of the country. Um, so for me, there was yeah, there were two eras. There was the the late night one. Um, and then there was the Saturday afternoon one. The late night one was never repeated in the daytime in this in in my region. So yeah, the first one was sort of the the early nineties, and it was it would air at about three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, Saturday night to Sunday morning, about three a.m. for an hour. Um, and I would stay up and watch it, and I'd kind of set up sometimes i'd set up a little bed on the sofa and have a little bit of a kip and then wake up because i've never been very good at staying awake all night anyway but um and my brother who is eight years older than me my brother would sometimes stay up with me or sometimes he'd he'd have gone out clubbing or something and come back he he didn't drink and he didn't do drugs so i've no idea why he went fucking clubbing but anyway he'd say so he'd come back and um and we'd watch the, we'd watch these shows together and they'd be that i even remember you'd have you'd have things like shakas and a, t- a really low budget cookery show called Get Stuffed on before it. Um and then um yeah that was that was things like I remember 
um, the first time I saw Abdul the Butcher when they did that ridiculous angle where he came out of a massive box and attacked Sting. Um, and uh, him and Cactus Jack wishing Sting happy birthday, even though it wasn't his birthday. And a very confused Gordon Soley um, asking them what they meant because Cactus Jack was uh, saying that Sting it was Sting's last birthday whilst eating birthday cake using a Sting action figure as a fork. Um, <laughs> and, and the thing with this was, and my brother plays a part in this as well, because I remember my brother in, it must have been sort of 89, 90 time, getting me um, a copy of Sports Review Wrestling, which was a, an Aptomag. And it was the first time I'd ever seen one of these magazines. I literally didn't know they existed. They weren't. They didn't normally get sold in this country. And I remember you know, reading this and reading about these wrestlers I'd never seen or heard before, like the Road Warriors and Dr. Death Steve Williams and Ric Flair. And, you know, because I'd only ever seen British wrestling and a little bit of the WWF that was shown on ITV in the in the late 80s. Um, and all of a sudden I'm seeing these, you know, these wrestlers that I've only ever read about because I, you know, I carried on picking these magazines up and i think worldwide was the start of my love affair with wcw because there's this great alternative that i thought was edgier and i much preferred to wwf um then and then um yeah there's also that was the era where they they had for a brief period of time they had a white canvas i remember that and we had lots of matches on worldwide we had lots of matches with like Big Josh and Tom Zenk and people like that and the world and Tommy Rich and the world's six man tag titles. Um, and this was where Ricky Morton became a heel and Brian Pillman had the world lightweight, light heavyweight title. Um, and then, yeah, we morphed into 92. We moved over to daytime and that's where the dangerous Alliance started coming coming up. Um, I think the nighttime ones also had Steve Austin when he first became the world champ, uh, the world TV champion with Lady Blossom, um, and and you'd yeah you'd often have a TV main event with Steve Austin. You'd often, as you've touched on, Liam, you'd have um, six man or multi man tags with the dangerous which would normally end in some sort of running and DQ and chaos and and it just seemed to be you'd get you'd get a, a much better reacting crowd and when you had these run-ins and you could tell when the baby faces were coming because the crowd would would scream for the baby face usually sting um you you also got I think this was from like WCW main event, but they put it on World on the the late night one as well. You got what I still consider to be the greatest squash match of all time, and you can find it easily enough on YouTube if you type in Sid Vicious versus Lee Scott. It's about a three minute match, and it's one of the most brutal squash matches you'll ever see in your life. Um, this side of the Steiner Brothers. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I could rattle on about this all night, but yeah, they they were my they were some of my memories. I absolutely loved WCW Worldwide. I remember looking forward to it on a Saturday night, Sunday morning. Um, yeah, it was it was it was great. Very fond memories of that period of time. Thank you for a great question, Anthony. Thank you on, very much. Honorable mention as well to being introduced to that awesome fucking walkway from the stage to the ring for the first time which mm. some more people should be doing also that not so awesome but i suppose in a, in a cult way it's it's fun to think of and i think it's awesome when they were at the the disney soundstage and they had the revolving 
bit so the ring would spin around when there was no one in it. Do you remember that? Uh, I'd forgotten that. They, but yeah, they, they could they spin the ring around. Every time they would just like do, the announcers were running down the card, they'd just show a shot of the, of the ring spinning around. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not actually that bad. It's, it doesn't add fuck all, but it's not. I like things <laughs> like that. And also, but you're very, right. The, sorry, the, the ramp. Yeah, the fact that they had a ramp that was level with the ring apron. So that meant that you, you could do. Um, yeah, you could throw people out of the ring onto the ramp or and dive onto them or dive into the ring from the ramp, throw people off the ramp to take a bump to the floor. It, it just added a nice little dimension. I loved when um, people did Irish whip spots only on the walkway because the ropes were there. The ropes were, were parallel. Yeah. So you could do something like a back body drop or, or hip toss reversal, but on the walkway was a nice little spot. Um, and also because Navdeep has brought up WCW Worldwide over here, it was on ITV in the early mid-90s, but we also got that revival towards the end, and it was a bit shit, but when Channel 5 had WCW Worldwide from the summer of 99 to the bitter end, I enjoyed Scott Hudson, I enjoyed uh, Armando Quintero, Larry Zabisco doing the international dub over commentary it's funny they'd always try and they, they they'd for some reason they'd be forced to show the matches in non-chronological order and when that made for contradictions hudson and that would have it be having to to cover for it and, it, and act like it's actually happened the way we're seeing it and there mm. was the infamous batman kapow blam things to cover yeah. up weapon shots and all in all, it was just a, it was another way to catch up on WCW wrestling, which is which is better than a kick up the arse. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Cool, excellent. Okay, next question is from uh, Wrestling Figures UK. I don't know if that's his real name. Uh, Deeds Pole. If it, it or, or if it is, it's uh, you know what's they what do they call it nominative determinism, where your name dictates what career you're going to have. Um, anyway, Wrestling Figs UK, hello to you guys. Um, despite some of Watts's, this is Bill Watts, despite some of Bill Watts's decisions, how good was 1992 with War Games, Doc and Gordy, etc.? Okay, so as we've covered on it, 1992 covers a lot of ground. You know, Watts, it's definitely a year of two halves. Yeah. I think. Watts was in charge. Um, Who's the guy before him with the bonuses? Kip, Kip, Kip Fry. Kip Fry and his bonuses, which went down quite well. And because if you remember, when we covered WrestleWar 92, Bill Watts had literally just been appointed that that week. So he was kind of, he was in charge, but on the what? Yeah, like when a football manager is appointed, they watch the first game from the stands. That yeah. was Bill Watts. He was on the watching brief at that point. I wonder if... Bill Watts, like Alan Pardew years after him, had a go at Kit for taking away his new manager bounce. <laughs> so you, you have to be introduced to the end of football to get that one. But if, if you got that inside baseball shit joke, then my hat's off to you and thank you for justifying my awful behaviour. But yeah, so it was all over the shop. But yes, there was a, you know, if you cherry pick, 1992 was awesome. If you do a random pick, it could go very badly. Yeah, it was. I mean, 92 up to and including more games was 
dominated by the Dangerous Alliance was fantastic because although it could have been frustrating at the beginning, you know, the payoff at that pay-per-view was was absolutely spot on. If we're talking about Wrestle War 92, by the way, we can't go through this podcast without mentioning the Steiners versus Fujinami and Izuka because that was just where they... Do you remember where they just brutalised Takayuki Izuka yeah. in his hot trunks? I that still was... think I still think that was uh, consensual, for lack of a better term. I mean, if you consider mm. what kind of a nutcase Izuka came, became as a as a veteran wrestler, I think it was him wanting to get over by taking a pounding, because there, there there was not enough awkwardness in that to make you think that someone was taking libbies, and it was also telling that they yeah, so it was telling that Fujinami. Uh, had completely different exchanges when he was in the ring and he was always safely out of there for those spots. So I think yes. it was I think it was Izuka trying to make a name for himself. Alternative, of course, the reason that Izuka became such a nut job veteran was because of that match. Um but he, <laughs> who no, the... I mean he carried on, you know, he had some bloody brawls. He was always a reckless guy. Uh the I remember the I'm not a huge Japanese wrestling guy, but he did have a big feud in those early days when New Japan was starting to get really good again, he was having these crazy chain matches with uh, Togi Makabe, I want to say. I've, I've YouTube some of this. Um, yeah, again, my, my knowledge is very vague, but stuff like that stood out a little bit. And yeah, he he definitely always came across as that sort of wrestler that would, you know, like, like Mick Foley, but in a slightly different way. He yeah. he would dedicate his body to the cause, so that's why I always got that impression. Because as I said on that episode, I always saw the um, the reception when other people watched it. And they wrote up reports, and it, it portrayed this match as a must-watch match for what they do to this poor kid, etc., etc. When I watched it, yeah, it was it was stiff, but it didn't come across as that crazy. Obviously, with some of the other stuff people have seen since, maybe that didn't help, but. But when I watched it, I was thinking, yeah, he's this is this is snug. This is, you know, he's taking a licking, but it doesn't look like I wouldn't put it up there with mass transit in ECW or anything. Oh God, no, that's that's <laughs> a completely different kettle of fish, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, what what did did you did you see much of the Watts era? Is that a bit before your time? What? Yeah, it was always with the benefit of hindsight, the what stuff. And going yeah. back to our previous question, yeah, the 90, I, I saw dashings of 92, and it was always via that drip feed of worldwide. And obviously I developed more of a knowledge later on when I when I actively sought out the archives. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you consider what a shit show WCW became in 1993, and I always refer people to Scott Keith's uh, I think he did. For, uh, he called it for the want of a nail, and he just went to town on those in '93. The worst was to come. '92 offers you some of that shit, like a prelude of how out of this world they got with their stupidity in '93. But they also offered some goodness. So yeah, I would say if you, if you want to enjoy some '92 WCW, just proceed with caution and pick based on verified recommendations or maybe you want yeah. to go back and watch Halloween Havoc 92 like oh, we man. and Dave Doyle did because you're you're not right in the head I don't know do what you want yeah <laughs> I mean 
it, yeah, the, the, the pre-Watts era was brilliant. The, the, the Watts era itself was just, it, it was just weird. It was just weird. It was just a, a step back in time, but without the warm, fuzzy glow of nostalgia. You know, the, uh, taking the mats away from ringside was just uh, an, an odd move. Um, you know, as you know, there, there's a reason those mats are there. It's just to break the fall a little bit because you don't want your wrestlers getting hurt because you want them to, to work. You want them to, you know, an, in, an injured wrestler scuppers your booking plans. Banning moves off the top rope was bizarre, and that was very quickly rescinded. You know, you'd got Brian Pillman, the light heavyweight champion, not allowed to do top rope moves. People lost their finishing moves, things like that. You know, Bobby Eaton couldn't do the Alabama Jam anymore, things that people wanted to see. Um, and and what what they you know Doc and Gordy how they mentioned here this it was it was strange because I mean they had this tremendous reputation in Japan they'd been in WCW when it was the NWA sort of at the turn of the decade not as main eventers but as you know tough guy in, in, tough guys in the mid card. And they had this this kind of dream match feud with the Steiners, and we have covered one of the um, we've covered one of the matches here on, on was it Bash ninety two? I think we might have talked talked about before. It might have been um, Havoc ninety two that we've referenced. It, sorry, it was it was, it was Havoc. It was Havoc. No, you're right. It was Havoc ninety two. It's the thirty minute time limit, um, and it was just dull. It was. It, apart from the fact that they, you know, they knew they were going the full 30 minutes and they therefore paced themselves and paced the match, just nothing much happened. And it, it was kind of, it was like, you know, it was Bill Watts' old school wrestling. It's, it would be like presenting British, British wrestling fought over rounds in 2019, 2020, but having the style of, holding a headlock on for three or four minutes. Mm. Yeah, you, it, it regressed and, and not in a positive way. And I remember, yeah, I'd still get the tapes and I'd still watch the shows, but at times it felt like a slog. It felt tough because the enjoyment had been sort of sapped out of it by some of Bill Watts's measures because he'd been out of, he'd been out of the game for a, a long while. You know, when he ran the UWF, um, you know, I think Steve Williams is one of his one of his top guys, um, along with Junkyard Dog, and he, you know, he tried to replicate the Junkyard Dog story with Ron Simmons, and he he hadn't adapted, he hadn't evolved, um, and whether you, you know, whether you like something or not, you have to admit, you know, you have to accept that it that it evolves. Um, yeah, when I, you know, I I look at matches today, I commentate on matches today, and there are times where you know, I think to myself, you know, why aren't why aren't people selling things anymore? It's just bang, 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 and getting one move in after another. And, and wrestling matches have changed from um, like a, a a simulation of combat of you know where you're trying to portray that you're having a match that you want to win, and it has now become more of a cooperative exhibition of athleticism between two people. And 
uh, you know, and that's fine because that's what that's how it's gone, and people like it, and you know, people are turning up to watch it in their droves still. So it can't be wrong. I prefer how things used to be, but we we've we've passed those days, and yeah, you've got to you got to move on. Yeah, you can either be like Jim Cornette and complain that how about how things used to be much better in in your day or you can be like i'm thinking of old veterans people like harley race and red bastine who would watch modern day wrestlers and appreciate what they're doing and and understand how the business had evolved because it's always going to evolve and it you know it could change it could go full circle and change combat again but um that was that was my long roundabout way of saying that Doc and Gordy didn't work in WCW in my opinion. No, it's true. And, and everything you say is a point. I mean, one of the things that sticks out to move wrestling is that uh there are things you think like tag team formula, uh certain storylines that get regurgitated, um and it's always at the bare bones of it. But there's certain things that stand the test of time. It's almost I think the best analogy I can think of is you think about uh, baking and the, some of the, the decor and some of the designs you see and they just get bigger, better, more extravagant and they move to certain ways and certain pastries as well become all the rage and then it goes around the cycle and you got if you're working in bakery, you've got to keep up with that to, to make a profit Ooh. and catch the eye and, and be all the rage. But... The process of baking cakes and pastry before you apply all the decorations and the sponge doesn't change. Yeah. You have to be able to make good. And there's certain things in wrestling that are the sponge you have to keep. And there are certain things that are the icing. And you cannot get away with offering just fondant. People don't want to eat fondant. They want to eat a bit of fondant on a nice big cake. Uh... And you've got to recognise which bits are the fondant and which bits are the cake. And guys like Jim Cornette obviously seem to think that their fondant is the whole cake and it fucking isn't. (laughs) So, and yeah, Bill Watts was one of those as well. And that's the problem. And then you get guys like Vince Russo who who think you don't need cake. Hates wrestling. (laughs) Thinks he can just get away with with no cake inside. Just a plate of icing. Just a plate of (laughs) icing. That is literally what he offers up. He has been quite vocal in how he despises what wrestling is, and he tries to take away the foundations of it. So, so yeah, I think that's the best way to look at it for me. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, and you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. Right, just before we go on to our next question, I uh, just want to tell you about some events coming up with our official partners, Hooked on Wrestling. Um, very soon, January the 4th, uh, we have got Wrestle Kingdom 14 is coming up. And it's the first time that this annual event is being spread across two days. So rather than just the usual January the 4th date, this is January the 4th and January the 5th. And wouldn't you know it, January the 4th is a Saturday and January the 5th is a Sunday. So it's over the weekend. It's early morning. It starts at, I believe, 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, our time, that is. Mm at Belushi's in London Bridge, um, just down down the road from Borough Market, 
London Bridge Station. Um, so you and I are going to be hosting both of those events. Yes. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be pretty awesome. Um, so yes, yeah, Saturday the fourth and Sunday the fifth of January at Belushi's in London Bridge, and then at the end of the month, January the twenty sixth, which is a Sunday night, uh, the famous Hooks on Wrestling Royal Rumble viewing parties. There's no one else that does a viewing party quite like our pals at Hooked on Wrestling. And they have got a whole range of parties all across the country. Um, So they are hosting events at Glasgow, Liverpool, London, Hull, Brighton, Aberdeen for the first time, Newcastle, Manchester, Leeds, and Cardiff, as well as a VIP viewing party back at Belushi's in London Bridge. So if you are interested in going to any of them, believe you me, it knocks the socks off of going to uh, watch it on your own in your front room. You've got beer or, or other beverages and hot food and a load of other wrestling fans making noise in front of a huge screen. It's well worth going to. To get your tickets, go to Hooked on Wrestling on facebook um hooked on events.co.uk or you can find them on twitter at ho underscore wrestling uh that is our friends at hooked on wrestling with their events coming soon and yeah that is all of the events including the wrestle kingdom and i just it's worth adding that if anyone listening hasn't been to these uh please do consider if you can come into both because the contrast between doing an early morning uh, airport rules, as our, as our guest Benson said, uh, for, for Japanese wrestling, it only happens once a year. And then to go to, as Dean said, it's the, it's the main event to do Rumble or WrestleMania or SummerSlam, watching it live on a Sunday night. Uh, with with a huge crowd of people, because as Dean said, it's dotted all around the country. The contrast is night and day, but they are both awesome. So consider coming to both. It'll be a great way to start the new decade. Definitely. Okay, moving on to next questions, and this this is probably the most because WCW question you could ask for. So thank you, Paul Newby. Paul asks, what do you think was WCW's most ridiculous pay-per-view? Oh, um, the one that leaps off the page for me would be the NWO sold-out experiment in early 97 do you remember that we were just talking funny enough, oh, we were yes. just talking about the with the nwo storyline question and i said late 96 was when they were starting to successfully take over and they were winning all their altercations with wsw wrestlers and they were becoming the boss and they were recruiting everyone so they had this pay-per-view which was universally panned and it was fucking weird to watch. Check it out on the network. And we're going to have to do that soon because it, it'll yes. be a great one for, because those those do. But if you think of what I said earlier, it made total sense. It was just it was just weird, I suppose, for them to actually charge people money to, to watch what is essentially a, uh, a concept idea that furthers the storyline. It really just should have been an episode of Nitro. And they yes. did later on, just before they lost at Starcade 97, they did NWO Nitro to threaten what would happen if Bischoff beat Zabisco in that high-stakes match. But 
But yeah, NWO Nitro may have worked a bit better and sold out because it really, it was a bit of a stink of an idea. And if you just waste a TV show on it, it makes sense. And it makes you kind of want to see the DDPs and the Stings and the Lugas and the Giants rally back and, and, and beat them at their own game and invade them. So it should have been done in that respect and it might have been cool if done like that. But as a result, it's just a waste of a pay-per-view and a really fucking weird watch that I can recommend you watch now because it's his fun network. But people actually paid money for that back in the day. Because that was where you had, uh, was Nick Patrick as the NWO referee, refereeing in an NWO t-shirt and... The ring was the canvas was NWO logo and everything as well, um, because it wasn't wasn't the idea that because when they a lot of these pay per views were branded at the time WCW NWO, and that the idea was that NWO is going to be like a break off promotion of its own. Yeah, this this was the first sign of Bischoff failing to appreciate the greatness of the New World Order. And failing to appreciate what we touched upon about out-of-touch promoters earlier is that, yeah, you've got to realise what something is. And the New World Order storyline was always going to have an expiry date. But he actually thought it was going to live forever. And he had that disdain for for what those W was before he took over. And he took the Horseman and Ric Flair for granted. And when that should have been a great part of the storyline, when they rallied back to, to fight the New World Order, but they, they didn't jump on it. And yeah, they, they, that pay-per-view was the first real sign that they didn't always have the full grasp of how to harness this amazing storyline. Which is a shame, but but yeah, check it because you can watch it for free now if you're a subscriber. Obviously, check it out. I would say for me, and well, we've we've already covered the uncensored '96 um, show because yeah, you had uh, you had the Doomsday Cage match. You also had the Giant v Loch Ness, which was um, wasn't a classic, shall we say? Um, but one we we've I'm sure we've mentioned this previously, the Road Wild or Hog Wild pay per views. Oh yeah, take your pick. Oh my god, <laughs> that not not the rest. I mean the the wrestling itself. There's nothing wrong with the wrestling, but you know, Paul has asked about what was you know the most ridiculous pay per view. Mm. It was the fact that basically this was a pay per view where they had a wrestling show in front of bikers who weren't wrestling fans um, who didn't pay any money to get in. So you lost your, you lost your revenue of, of gate money. You lost the atmosphere of a wrestling crowd because most of the bikers didn't know who the fuck these people were. You had awkward situations where you had, I think it was Booker T or Stevie Ray and, Chavo Guerrero and you had the black guy and the Mexican out in front of a crowd of bikers and they're wondering why the atmosphere is shall we say a little bit tense um and it was all because Eric Bischoff and a few of his mates liked riding their Harleys and so they basically managed to persuade Ted Turner to allow them to go and do a pay-per-view for three or four years running at a bike rally, one of which had a fucking country western music concert at the end. I can't remember the bloke's name, but it was some 
bloke I've never heard of because no one listens to country music much in this country. But again, wrestling fans want to watch wrestling, not a country music you know, um, concert. This is why you know why I hate the, the the musical breaks at WrestleMania because that's not what people want to have come to see. Um, and I, I'm sure you've, you've mentioned this before, Liam. It was jolly for Eric Bischoff, basically. It was. <laughs> Kudos for him being able to pull that off, but it's unfortunate for those of us who actually have for to watch it. For three fucking years, Liam. He pulled that off for three years. 96, 97, 98, 99. The first one was Hogwild. Four Hog years. Yep. And the, Four the, fucking years he pulled that off. One Hogwild, three Roadwilds. And it's also worth mentioning, when you say about how people watched the live crowds were free and not paid uh three of those four years the company was very profitable and shows were licenses to print money so they're really it's it's, it's not like they're like oh well we're not drawing much of a gate anyway let's just do this so it looks like we got a huge crowd no they could have made a ton in 1997 and 98 are you kidding me they were very profitable it's crazy did did they also have a bash at the beach on a beach, Huntington Beach or something? Ninety five, weren't it? Because they had the lifeguard match with Savage and Flair, and there we were singing their praises earlier. <laughs> Marvelous, right? Okay, our next question comes from Scott Faust, who writes: I was a big Bret Hart loyalist back in nineteen ninety seven, and was fully intending to switch shows to Nitro when he did in November, but what came clear was that they had no idea what to do with him how would you have booked brett coming in okay so uh, i'm i'm relishing a bit more fantasy booking mate maybe the next q a we might just have to do a armchair booker episode <laughs> i'd be up for that but i'll i'll, I'll attack this one I've, I've touched upon this as well we did the bret hart special where we went to get into some of the bret hart aspects but we felt a little hamstrung because we had this amazing uh, obviously the, the quality was off of a camcorder but what Brett said in that special episode we had a few months ago was incredible insight and it was very sobering stuff Dean and I at the time felt we couldn't really add too much we had a little conversation we couldn't add too much because the power of Brett's words was, was too much to, to make light in the same episode or anything like that, yeah, that that one is uh, that's episode number 40 we put out in September end of September night. 2019 so yeah episode 40 if you want to listen back to that believe you me it's well worth going out of your way to listen to that one yes but yeah this is an opportunity for me to go more into this because that wasn't the right time but this question is the perfect time that's perfect opportunity so if we consider what i said earlier about the the new old order starcade 97 that's when Brett R makes his first appearance. It should dovetail with the demise of the NWO as as the power, as the big bads, as the power faction, the big threat to WCW. WCW vanquishes them. WCW fine. NWO just a bunch of guys in t-shirts who end up imploding. I like the whole Hall and Nash against Hollywood. I'm not quite sure about Hall going on. Uh, Hogan's side, but you do the Hollywood versus Wolfpack thing with them. Meanwhile, you've got Brett, and I thought he's aside from the silliness that we covered in our very first episode covering Starcade '97. You know, it, it was a really weird finish when he was the referee of Zabisco Bischoff. Make that a bit more clear. Make that a bit more, you know, in the tried tested honour of 
just having a satisfactory and clear emphatic babyface win do that get rid of that crap where he gets involved in sting hogan to make a reference to the screw job because that should have just been sting winning clean and then you move on to sold out 98 another underrated pay-per-view i look forward to covering one day with you dean but you had Brett versus Flair. They thought, right, we're gonna we're gonna throw him in. The first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna do a, a a dream match, a technical wrestling match, and that was right down Brett's wheelhouse. It was a great way for him to start, other than the dubious nature of his Starcade appearances, his in-ring pay-per-view debut. Yeah, absolutely, put him over Flair. Good shout. Now going forward, you get him a few other matches. Uh, I didn't mind, I think I won the pay-per-views, maybe uncensored. I, I might need to be corrected. Maybe Spring Stampede. He fought Kurt Hennig. Now, anyone who's listened to Bret Hart speak about Kurt Hennig knows there is a very Ooh. strong chance that he personally lobbied for that. He would have, regardless of Hennig's plummeting stock after losing the US title, Bret would have wanted to go in there and help help ease off some of the dust and some of the the mental block he might have had from going through the screw job by wrestling his favorite ever opponent Kurt Hennig so yeah yes. fair play so for the first few months I can call no harm no foul I, I, I can even say I enjoyed most of it the big problem came when we mentioned this when we covered Slambury 98 recently was when they nonsensically turned him heel to put the belt back on Hogan now, that's a big match you, you should be able to build to. And I appreciate you've got the politics. You know, they couldn't make it happen in the WWF because of all the shit. Uh, it would have been tough to pull off with Hogan's great control contract in a satisfactory manner. And obviously, you know, you can imagine Brett probably had enough creative control to make sure he didn't get liberties taken either. So you've got a bit of a Mexican standoff. But you would have tried to find a way to work to that eventually. Uh, in an ideal world, and this is kind of trying to pretend the creative control isn't an obstacle and it was so take my thoughts with a pinch of salt but i would have probably turned bret hart hill not too long into his time anyway but for me it would have had fuck all to do with the nwo or the Wolfpack or anything like that he wouldn't have had anything to do with that but for me you've got wcw champion sting early 98 you've got goldberg coming on the rise and non-NWO, you can have them up against NWO aspects at some points, but at this at this stage, you don't have that as the as as the big draw anymore. You know, you've got some guys there for Goldberg to tear through, and a few familiar opponents for Sting, but otherwise they're not main event big programs for Sting and Goldberg. But I would turn Bret Hart to oppose you. He could even, he could turn heel to dethrone Sting because I wouldn't have taken a belt off Sting. For, for Savage and a one-day reign to get back off Hogan. You could have a heel turn for Brett to get the title off Sting, which then leads to Goldberg having his big Georgia Dome moment, maybe not so soon, but at some point, against Brett. And then maybe start a feud there. Uh, you could even... I remember, so... Wrestle Crap. Everyone's been on Wrestle Crap. Great website for, for kind of what we mm. do half the time, taking the piss out of... Uh, silly garbage things in wrestling but also they they did a few little side things at times i don't know if anyone remembers they had a a feature on there called rewriting the book here we are talking about fancy booking i remember one of the things they tackled was around this time frame and i remember them 
I think it's Jed Schaefer, his name was, who did most of these. Some were hit and miss, and it depends on your personal preference. Some will enjoy some, some will enjoy others. Other people will be different. But one of the ones I enjoyed most was where he covered that um, Bret Hart would have been like a quasi, like a new horseman leader. And they did do a thing in 99 where the where the, um, the Benoit's and the Malenko's got sick of being held down by Flair. And you could imagine someone like Hart uh, pinching him from under the nose and making his own faction. And you got a chance to turn Flair face for a shot of revenge at all of them. You've got some possibilities there. But I, th- I think if I was to do a, a, a TLDR, too long didn't read of this explanation, I'd say I'd have kept him a million miles away from anything NWO related until that fizzled out finally, presumably by the end of 98 when you had the Civil War thing and the War Games blow off. And I would have I would have had him heal, but in a much more meaningful way, because I think facing Hill Brett done properly, uh, rising phenomenon Goldberg win his first title off Hill Brett, they're all things that would have been amazing. But that's just my opinion. So for me, the problem with Bret Hart in WCW, it literally starts on day one um, with with well, it was actually the very first episode of because WCW Starcade '97. They bring him out, you know, this is a month after um, Survivor Series. They bring him out as a special guest referee for, for Bischoff v. Zabisco. And then also, obviously, he comes down at the, the end of the Hogan-Sting match. And it's, it's like no one, no one is interested in seeing Bret Hart refereeing a match. You know, Bret Hart at the time was the single most famous and pretty much notorious at this point wrestler in the world, and WCW had got him. You know, this is this is the equivalent of of you know Liverpool signing Lionel Messi and getting him to sell hot dogs or something. It just doesn't make sense. You want to see him? You want to see him do what he's famous for? Had they, I mean, they they didn't need they didn't need him on Starcade '97 because the draw for that was was Hogan's thing, which had been promoted brilliantly. So you could hold him off for the next show. This is Bret Hart. He's big enough that if you give it a month, people will still know who he is. And you have him wrestle, and you have him dominate things. You have him come in and beat people. Because he is that famous. And this is the problem that you always get. It's the same problem you got with the the invasion angle when WCW was bought out by the WWF. Um, It was the same problem that the NWA had when they bought out the UWF. In that it's a work, but the company that has bought out the other company don't want themselves to look weak. Whereas, and this is where I said about holding that thought earlier on, the NW, uh, NJPW, New Japan Pro Wrestling, the UWFI feud in 1995, this was where Eric Bischoff was in attendance. This was where the UWFI company, which was like a pseudo-shoot um, style promotion with um, Nobuiko Takada as their champion, they were they were basically folding up. They're in trouble, and New Japan basically worked with them because they realised that they could they could get some good good traction out of this. 
they didn't quite do it right because they had the in my opinion anyway because the first they had the first match they had was of Keiji Muto as the IWGP champion against Takada um that was at Tokyo Dome, October 95. They drew 67,000 fans to Tokyo Dome off the back of that dream match. The two champions of these two promotions going at it. Um, but Muto won. And everyone kind of thought that was it. But then they had a rematch back at the Tokyo Dome for the, the January the 4th show, what's now Wrestle Kingdom. Um, and Takada beat Muto, and the place was in shock because no one was expecting it. Yeah, you don't expect the invading promotion to beat your champion. But they swallowed their ego. They had that happen. Um, and then Takada dropped the belt to Shinya Hashimoto, and that drew a crowd of 65,000. And again, it says here of $5.7 million. So in the space of six months, they have drawn three crowds of around 65, 66,000 people. It was the largest gate in Japanese history at the time. They had done things where they'd swallowed their egos to make money, to make, to get the get some business in so you could have had Bret Hart the WWF champion beating a load of their guys and and drawing money because not because he came from the WWF but because he's Bret Hart and he's that fucking good and you could have used Bret Hart as the 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 kickstart that WCW needed that could have been where the NWA NWO came came crumbling down because, you know, go back to what we were talking about before the dangerous Alliance, they started to crumble, not because of some convoluted or, or complex angle. They started to crumble because they lost the big pay-per-view match. They lost cleanly at WrestleWar 92. And that was where the chinks in the armor started to appear and they started to fall apart. You could have that happen with the NWO, maybe in a war games match or something like that. Then you could also have where Bret Hart is the world champion. He could have a match or he could be challenged by Chris Benoit, this young Canadian guy who is wanting to wrestle, you know, his, his mentor, his idol, whatever. We know how good those matches would be. Imagine, you know, the reason you know, they, they put the belt on Chris Benoit right at the end of 2000, just moments before he defected to WWF because he'd, he'd had enough of the, the lack of opportunities. Imagine if three years previous to that, you'd had Bret Hart cleanly putting over Chris Benoit. And I can, I can pretty much say with my hand on my heart, I'm convinced he would have been absolutely happy to do that. And you would then have a new generation in WCW. The glass ceiling would have been broken and maybe just maybe WCW would have continued. Maybe. Um, you said a lot of interesting things there. I'm going to go back through a few of them. First off, when you brought back the Dangerous Alliance skin, yeah, the War Games defeat brought up the chinks of armour. The sad part is, it's like we're referencing all these questions back and forth, uh, going back to our singing the praises of that match, and then going back to the Bill Watts question. He's the reason why we didn't see more of a downfall of the Dangerous Alliance, because he couldn't get Paulie dangerously and that entire storyline out of it fast enough. So we didn't really see it. They kind of just quietly blipped away. But 
Larry Zabisco screwed up in that match. That was meant to lead to the splits and the problems. So you are right. We should have got that, and we didn't. Um, if I was to, and I want to cut those. You and and we know we know why we didn't, because as you've mentioned before, it was because of the creative control. It was because of the egos mm. that you know, if they didn't like something, nope, nope, love it. Um, I do want to cut them some slack towards the end of 97. Um, I wouldn't say it would be like Liverpool signing Messi and making him sell hot dogs. I'd say maybe more akin to Liverpool signing Messi and having his debut come from the bench because the incumbent starting eleven have been shit hot and are winning every game like they actually are now. Uh, because, yeah, as you kind of alluded to anyway, Dean... They had Starcade 97 all set up when they were able to get Hart after the screw job. They they knew what was happening at Starcade 97, for better or worse. They were on that road. Sting versus Hogan was, was going to draw a huge figure. Um, and I do remember the storyline of his first appearance. They made, before they could actually bring him on, as, as they were untangling all that, they were making references to him joining the NWO. They were like, you know, you're coming from there, that's a whole mission state, without actually saying that because of the legal thing. But they were like, you know, coming from there, you're perfect for us, come on, join us. I remember when the NWO all came out to the ring and they were, they had maple leaf flags and they were singing Old Canada because they were like, you know, sucking up to him, they wanted him to join. So the big suspense was, you had, you know, these big superstar matches, Hogan Sting and Will... Bret Hart screws Abisco and join the NWO and give Nitro to the NWO. So yeah, fair play, you do that and you have the big moment where he's the referee where he stops. Because I remember they tried to do a thing in that match where it looked like he was kind of doing his job and upholding rules, but it was stifling Zabisco, whereas the Hills were getting away with it, not through any fault of Bret's. They wanted people to think, oh no, he's, he's, he's on their side. But he was doing his job. And when push came to shove, he did it. But he was just in such a mess of a way that it didn't come off well. You do it properly, that's great. Keep him away from the main event. And if I'm to combine what me and you have said here, yeah, you're spot on. Keep him unbeaten. We talked about if he decks Hall, that's a match. Maybe Super Brawl, I guess. Uh, Flair sold out was, was fine as it was. I really like that. You do that. Hennig, again, as I said, understandable. Uncensored spring stepping. Maybe make him go 5-0 and in major pay-per-view matches. And as you said, don't have him lose. Doesn't drop a match on TV either. And he's 5-0 and in big pay-per-view matches. The point where he goes, right, look at my records since I've got here. Helped make sure the NWO couldn't take over. They're they're squabbling amongst themselves in a civil war now. I've done enough to prove my credentials. I want Sting. Big babyface match. Sting wins. He's the first man to beat Brett. And that's when I turn Brett Hill. He'd do the sportsmanship thing, but then lay him out at the end of the match. And then you have a rematch where he's got the killer instinct. And he, this time he's like, no one beats me. I'm going to hurt him. And he viciously, with that mean streak and a bit of cheating, he wins the belt. And you've got your heel. And you've got a top face instinct to go against him. That's a great feud. Goldberg is obviously the next thing for them. And, and a heel Brett will be a great way to transition that. And I agree with what you're saying about him putting Benoit over. But as much as WCW strung him along, I have to say, 
1999 was probably the time for Benoit to be a main eventer, even if it wasn't for Kevin Sullivan. He should have done more stuff. He should have been more significant in 98. But he also did do, you know, he was a prominent mid-carder in 98 with the, the the US title feud with Page and Raven and things like that. He did some bits. And I think he should have been, not at the end of 99 when Russo took over, I think, yeah, like uh, late 98, early 99, maybe once um, Goldberg is done with Brett, then you can have Brett as the man to put him over. And yeah, there's... As I mentioned, there's there's all sorts of maybe horseman-related stuff there as well that Brett would have fit in with. So the possibilities are endless, but we're both on the same track there. Like he could have been, if you could, I think the the general agreement is you keep, you have that Starcade moment where he helps deal the deciding blow to their dominance, and they move down into a supporting act in the upper mid card, and then you yeah. keep him well away from the new world order outside of wrestling Scott Hall and Kurt Hennig or shit like that and winning, um, you move on to a, a, a main event scene where you've got your Stings and your Bretts and your, your Goldbergs. But yeah, yeah, creative control meant that was impossible. But in an ideal yeah. world, that's what's going to keep the hot thing going, I think. Because the other problem at the time, we, we've seen this with with some some of the watch-alongs that we've, we're, we're getting into that era now, that yeah, we're in the, the the midst of this heated wrestling war between WWF and WCW. And a lot of the time, it seems that getting a knock-in on the opposition is more important than enhancing your own product. And so, you know, one reason that they had Bret Hart as a referee at Starcade was so that they could reference the screw job and, and stop a screw job from happening with... Hogan and Sting, and obviously we know what happened with, with Nick Patrick and the fast count that was never fast. But if you had him, you know, if, if that was down to me, I would have the first appearance, or the first live appearance of Bret Hart in WCW to be at a pay-per-view in a wrestling match to get people to pay to watch him wrestle someone in a WCW ring by all means have like a pre-taped thing at a location, you know, at his home out somewhere. I don't know, in, you know, just as a, an outside broadcast pre-taped thing where he's talking into a microphone with the WCW logo on it. So you can, you know, you see Bret Hart with the, the WCW logo in the same, the same shot, but, but yeah, a, a, a taped promo wouldn't, deliberately so wouldn't get the same kind of oh my god novelty reaction that a live appearance would get but you're just there to show look he has signed he's definitely with us this is happening and then you pull the trigger and have him appear live on a pay-per-view and that's where you get the revenue because you know pay-per-view is the mainstream of revenue yeah well i mean we might have to agree to disagree a little bit there. i thought i yeah. thought the stark the suspense of the starcade 97 thing and the climax in you. I, I, I was a fan of that. It was the execution, as we covered in that first episode. The, it was a confusing mess. But done right, I thought that was a good way to have him appear. You know, have him appear. They, you know, we don't know how many extra... It was always going to draw a good number, Star K97. But we don't know how much promising heart to appear and saying, will he, will he or won't he with WCW or NWO? You know, that could have that really added a, a little extra layer on the buy rate. 
on yeah. top of Sting Hogan. And then you have his yeah. first match with Flair, which I thought was a brilliant choice for his first match. And you can still promote that as his first WCW match. Because I remember there there are altercations on remember we covered the first episode of Thunder, debut of Thunder Wheels, was another episode we did, and they kept it confrontational talking face to face talking about who was the better man I'm going to show you the better man and then they had his first match so it's all promotional like that definitely right we have time for one final question rather appropriately seeing as we often end these these uh, podcasts with a theme this is about WCW theme tunes this comes from Francis Reyes he has said what's your best WCW theme and can't can you sing the American Males song? Francis, what's what's wrong with you? Why do you want us? A, why do you want us singing? And B, out of all the songs in the world, why do you want it to be American Males, American Males? Come on, then. American Males, American Males. American Males, American Males. I thought I'd leave you hanging for a little bit because I yeah, can't believe you actually did that. Oh, I was actually going to save, I know you did it earlier, I was going to save especially for Francis, I was going to save my nope for him. <laughs> but yeah, I'll do, I did a little bit. So there you go. That's that out of the way. Now the actual question, favourite themes. Yeah, this is our chance to stick in a couple of themes like it was a pay-per-view episode. So Dean, I'll, I'll bequeath you to go first. you want to pick one? Favourite? Yeah, I'm thinking about this. There's, there's a lot to choose from. I... I still think one one that um I one that I love is the the four horsemen um you know the guitar the tw- the twangy guitar of, of the four horsemen yeah um the mid 90s I think I was I was listening to one of um Arn Anderson's pay-per-views recently and they used that as you know intro music obviously and oh, and yeah when when I heard that I was like yeah this is uh you know, this this just this is it brings brings back um it brings back certain just it they were because they were they were like you know they're prop the horsemen were proper serious wrestlers and it was like that they were the kind of guys if you know if if WCW Worldwide was on and and Arn Anderson came out or you know, Anderson and, and and Benoit or whoever it might be came out to that music. You knew that these were some serious proper wrestlers, and you could quite happily watch their match in front of non wrestling fans and not be shown up or not be embarrassed. You know, um, and another one I I loved. I don't remember. I think we've I think we've covered this. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure we did cover this with Stu Allen. Um, Lex Luger's um, early nineties, yeah. The, yeah, the, the yeah. guitar, the da, 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 that, you know that one. That was a good like hill grinding, growling theme. Was I did like that one? It yeah, fitted, yeah, it fitted him. It fitted his personality. Yeah. Fuck it, you can have a two for it's Christmas. Merry Christmas, Dean. Here's a bit of that one. <laughs> Thank you.
so I like that. So you, I mean, the question was favourite, so you're more than welcome to pick wherever you like. And it was nice to hear those two again. But with my pick going second and at the very end of this, that allows me to actually stick on one more that hasn't been part of this feature in any context. And I'm going to do that and I'm going to kill two birds with one stone by doing that and answering the question. My favourite theme is the one I believe to be legit the best composition. I think it's a toss up maybe, but I think this would get my pick out of the top two. And I'll play that now and you'll know exactly what it is. Now, part of it is because, granted, the, the character and the way he came back and destroyed the NWO, or should have destroyed them even more, really, uh, was amazing. So that helps. But this whole thing and the fact that the whole Crow aspect was all the rage at the time, everything just clicked. And I just, I, I loved the tune. I actually remember getting a passing grade on part of my music GCSE assignment. <laughs> By ripping off the 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 main riff of this, you know, da, na, 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 na. just took that and turned it into something else. Teacher was none the wiser, didn't fucking watch wrestling, and I got <laughs> I got a good grade from it, and it worked. He, I remember him actually saying, he was like, "Oh, this this tune you've done sounds like like a a showstopper at an IB for club." I was like, "Piss off, mate!" But thanks for the compliment. Like you're talk, you're talking out your ass, but I appreciate you being kind. You know, because that's and how you know I something... speak to people. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> and you know something, the fact that WCW ripped off so many other people's music as their theme tunes, it's only appropriate that you should rip off something of WCW. Yes, I'm turning it around. And for those wondering, when I said it, for me, the best ever WCW theme is top two, I think Goldberg is the close second for me. Just the, the two of them mm. were just such compositions that were they, they they summed up the character and the man walking out to them so well. Uh and we you know, 
Dean and I have a soft spot for the for the real absolute ripoffs, the shameless ripoffs. So we like them, but obviously stuff like this is so much better when it's done in a in a bit more of an individual way. Yeah, obviously there's a bit of a crow illusion with the sting thing, but these those two themes for me were peak WCW audio pleasure and sting for me number one. And I believe what did do we we did that theme tune world cup what did win i think it was new old order that won it so that yes. was a disgrace no offense <laughs> but um but yes yeah, sting sting should have won it i should have rigged it <laughs> well if if recent history has told us anything it's you can never predict how the public are going to vote <laughs> and, <laughs> and on that note we have we have we thought this is going to be a a quick swift paper podcast but my goodness we've 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 had a good old chinwag thank you if you congratulations if you've made it to the end thank you very much this has been good fun definitely Mm. thank you very much to kieran carl lynn navdeep wrestle figures uk paul scott and francis for your questions very much appreciated thank you so much for downloading this episode thank you for every person who's downloaded any episode in 2019 we will be back raring to go in 2020 um with a bit of luck i have i've put the uh the um nitro book by guy evans on my christmas list uh, the incredible rise and inevitable collapse of ted turner's wcw um so as we said we're recording this before christmas with a bit of luck by the time we put this out i'll have a copy of it in my hands and that will be some reading for my christmas holidays um and that will give us quite a good insight into things things we can talk about in future episodes so um i'm sure you will uh, agree with me Liam, when when i say that we are, we are very very grateful for everyone who downloads any episode of ours who contacts us or follows us on social media it, yeah we let's just let's keep building this we love doing this we have so much fun and to hear your feedback warms the cockles of our cold dead hearts not like that no, oh cockles that. never cockles all right never mind and on behalf of liam this is the twisted genius dean as saying thank you so much for downloading us thank you so much for being part of our journey this year we'll see you next year have a very merry christmas a happy new year and i'll see you Tree side. See what I did there.